Good morning. Right, I'm just going to set my timer up. Hold on, I'll keep you here till two o'clock. You'll be beating me. <laughs> that was a joke, honest. <laughs> okay. Um, I know we just pray, but can we just pray again? Really sorry about that. Lord, I just pray that uh, as I speak, I pray that the words that are of me, I pray that you'd just burn them up and take them away. And that which is of you, Holy Spirit, I pray that you would plant it and land it. I pray that, uh, that people would hear what you want to say, not me. So, Lord, I pray that you'd speak to us all. In your name, amen. Last week, Rose spoke to us um, from the 40-day journey, if you remember, and uh, from our time away as a leadership team when we went to HOD, when we felt we needed a kind of uh, further repentance and apology to you as a congregation, uh, which Phil Walker um, led. And Rose's preach was a follow-on from Joe Clark's on the 29th of March, which was on Hosea. And uh, if you weren't here, can I just encourage you to get those podcasts? You know, sometimes there are certain things that are actually quite significant in, uh, in your church kind of history. And if those that are not with us at the moment and are choosing to have a bit of a break, um, uh, then please encourage them to listen to those podcasts. That would be really great. For some time, I've had the story of uh, Abigail on my heart and a trusted friend sent it to me um, before Christmas about Abigail. And she felt it was for me. And uh, I thought it was just for me personally. But in recent days, um, the Lord's just kind of shone a different light on it, uh, which I believe I'm, I'm to share today um, with you guys. Uh, last week, we talked about uh, the way that we could have possibly taken God's presence for granted. And Rose challenged us to go away and to think about that and to ask the Holy Spirit to lead us individually um, to think about what we might have done as he had done for Rose and for us leaders about repentance to God and our individual part in that You know, as leaders, we have to bear the responsibility, but each of us contribute to who we are as a body. And uh, the Lord's looking for humility and an eager desire for him. We're going to read Abigail's story. If you've got it in your Bibles, great. If not, it's going to be on the, on the, I was going to say the overhead then. How old am I? Um, on the PowerPoint. Uh, 1 Samuel, if you're looking for it, 1 Samuel, and it's chapter 25. And this is a New Living Translation. Should we read it together? Because otherwise your brain's disengaged and you'll be like, that. oh my life, I've heard so much. Let's read together. It's good to read the word out. Okay. Now Samuel died and all Israel gathered for his funeral and they buried him at his house in Ramah. Then David moved down to the wilderness of Maon and there was a wealthy man from Maon who owned property near the town of Carmel. He had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats and it was sheep shearing time. This man's name was Nabal. And his wife, Abigail, was a sensible and beautiful woman. But Nabal was a descendant of Caleb, was a crude and mean in all his dealings. 
When David heard that Nabal was shearing his sheep, he sent ten of his young men to Carmel with this message for Nabal. Peace and prosperity to you, your family and everything you own. I am told that it is sheep shearing time. While your shepherds stayed among us near Carmel, we never harmed you and nothing was ever stolen from them. Ask your own men, and they will tell you that it is true. So would you be kind to us, since we have come at a time of celebration? Please share any provisions you might have on hand with us, with your friend David. David's young men gave this message to Nabal, and in David's name, and they waited for a reply. Who is this fellow David? Nabal sneered to the young men. Who does this son of Jesse think he is? There are lots of servants these days who ran away from their masters. Should I take my bread and my water and my meat that I have slaughtered for my shearers and give it to a band of outlaws who come from who knows where? So David's young men returned and told him what Nabal had said. Get your swords, was David's reply, as he strapped on his own. Then 400 men started off with David, and 200 remained behind to guard their equipment. Meanwhile, one of Nabal's servants went to Abigail and told her, David sent messengers from the wilderness to greet our master, but he screamed insults at them. These men have been very good to us, and we have never suffered them any harm from them. Nothing was stolen from us the whole time they were with us. In fact, day and night, they were like a wall of protection to us and to the sheep. You need to know this and figure out what to do, for there is going to be trouble for our master and his whole family. He is so ill-tempered that no one can even talk to him. Abigail wasted no time. She quickly gathered 200 loaves of bread, two wine skills full of wine, five sheep that had been short-slaughtered, nearly a bushel of roasted grain, a hundred clusters of raisins, 200 fig cakes. She packed them on donkeys and said to her servants, Go on ahead. I will follow you shortly. But she didn't tell her husband Nabal what she was doing. As she was reading her donkey into the mountain ravine, she saw David and his men coming toward her. David had just been saying, a lot of good it did to help this fellow. We protected his flocks in the wilderness and nothing he owned was lost or stolen. But he repaid me for evil for good. May God strike me and kill me if even one man of his household is still alive tomorrow morning. When Abigail saw David, she quickly got off her donkey and bowed low before him. She fell at his feet and said, I accept all blame in this matter, my Lord. Please listen to what I have to say. I know Nabal is a wicked and ill-tempered man. Please don't pay any attention to him. He is a fool, just as his name suggests. 
but I never even saw the young men you sent. Now, my Lord, as surely as the Lord lives and you yourself live, since the Lord has kept you from murdering and taking vengeance into your own hands, let all your enemies and those who try to harm you be as cursed as Nabal is. And here is a present that I, your servant, have brought to you and your young men. Please forgive me if I have offended you in any way. The Lord will surely reward you with a lasting dynasty, for you are fighting the Lord's battles, and you have not done wrong throughout your... Even when you are chased by those who seek to kill you, your life is safe in the care of the Lord your God, secure in his treasure pouch. But the lives of your enemies will disappear like stones shots from a sling. When the Lord has done all that he promised and has made you a leader of Israel, don't let this blemish on your record. Then your conscience won't have to bear the staggering burden of needless bloodshed and vengeance. And when the Lord has done these great things for you, please remember me, your servant. David replied to Abigail, Praise the Lord, the God of Israel, who has sent you to meet me today. Thank you for your good sense. Bless you for keeping me from murder and from carrying out vengeance with my own hands. For I swear by the Lord, the God of Israel, who has kept me from hurting you, that if you had not hurried out to meet me, not one of Nabal's men would be still alive tomorrow morning. Then David accepted her present and told her, Return home in peace. I have heard what you have said. We will not kill your husband. When Abigail arrived home, she found that Nabal was throwing a big party and was celebrating like a king. He was very drunk, so she didn't tell him anything about her meeting with David until the next dawn. In the morning, when Nabal was sober, his wife told him what had happened, and as a result, he had a stroke, and he lay paralyzed on his bed like a stone. About ten days later, the Lord struck him, and he died. Well done. Are you exhausted? <laughs> you thought it was only going to be a few verses, didn't you? <laughs> it's one of those things where unless you read the whole story, you kind of miss bits. Is that okay? So that's why we kind of read the whole thing. Abigail and Nabal's story takes place during David's outlaw years while he was running from the mad and murderous king Saul. The great prophet Samuel was the, had just died and the country was mourning the loss of a great and influential leader. David and his band of 600 men take refuge in the wilderness of Paran near Carmel, which is also the place where the wealthy man, Nabal, is pastoring his flocks of, I managed to say sheeps in that reading, did you notice? Sheep and goats. <laughs> okay. Thanks to David and his man, Nabal's flocks and herds were well protected from the band of Ishmaelites who roamed the wilderness to steal and cause harm. David and his men were on the run, they were in survival mode. They could have simply taken from the herds for their needs or demanded payment for their services, but 
under the leadership of David, they were valiant and noble in caring for and protecting whatever flocks and herds camped nearby. Nabal. Now, the first thing we learn about this is the fact that where he lived, that he was in Carmel, and he was a very rich man, 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats. That's a, that's a lot of animals. That's a, that's a lot, isn't it? I can speak to you as a farmer, can't I? That's a lot. He knows farming. Does that? Ah, Brian. Right then, there are four kinds of riches. There are riches in what you have, riches in what you do, and riches in what you know, and riches in what you are, riches of character. Nabal was a rich man, but he was only rich in the lowest form of riches, in just in what he had. There was a harvest time for the sheep for the sheep shearers and the ranchers, and because of that time, there was lavish hospitality, and the name the, the name Nabal means fool. In ancient Israel, it, names are connected with a person's character. Now we don't know if Nabal was given the name or he earned it, but he certainly lived up to it. <laughs> David requested payment because he performed a valuable service for Nabal, protecting his flocks from raids which were common. And to our modern ears, it almost sounds like David was running a bit of a, you know, a bit of a protection racket. But that wasn't the case. He performed a worthy and valuable service for Nabal and expected to be compensated. Now, David waited until the right time to ask for compensation from his services. David had protected his shepherds and the flocks for a long time, but he didn't expect to be compensated from Nabal until he'd made his money from the sheep shearing. So he got it in the right timing. And David sent just 10 men, just a small amount, when he got 600, which shows that David made a polite request. He did it through messengers so Nabal didn't feel intimidated and he sent warmth and kindness so that there was nothing, no pressure for Nabal. That shows that David made, he was kind and patient and careful in his request and polite But David didn't demand a specific payment or a set price. He simply left it up to Nabal's generosity. You've seen the little advert, haven't you? Pay whatever you think. Have you seen that advert? Did you not watch telly? Morris, I I don't think they've got a telly. Have you seen the little advert when they say you pay whatever you think? What's that principle? Say little. Mm. Anyway, you must be Aldi people. Okay, so... um, so when he, when he sent back saying that he didn't know um, David, um, it was really, really rude. It can't be that he didn't know him because David was famous throughout the whole of Israel. Nabal aimed a direct insult to David, knowing who he was, but refusing to recognise him. In our modern day, Nabal was basically saying, who does he think he is? It does say in that version, which was why we read that version. Who does he think he is, the son of Jesse? Um, he deepened the insult by saying that he was a rebellious servant and was completely false because at that point he'd been continually, although not perfectly, conducted himself wisely when he'd been attacked by Paul. 
And he talks about um, my, there was a bit that we read about my bread and my water and my meat. So Nabal showed that he was very ungenerous, that he looked at everything as his instead of actually what I've got is a result of God and therefore everything that I have is the Lord's. So true and biblical generosity doesn't think this is mine and I'll give you that. You know, like, have you ever had, you know, when you had to share crisps when you were a kid? You know, when your mum would say, share them, and you'd be like that. And you'd have one that was like the size of an ear. And you'd have to pass the packet out. And you were tempted to do that, weren't you? To give them one. But then you were told that you had to offer the packet. So you'd offer it. And you you see, you probably didn't do this, but I did it. You know, excuse the packet. (laughs) So they can't get too far down. My brother and sister always used to rub all of mine. So I used to squeeze the package so I couldn't get to the bar. See, I bet you've never done that. But that's not generosity, you see. So David reacts with that because it's not good generosity. He offers a proper insult. So he says... um, uh, he doesn't realise who he's dealing with. Nabal doesn't realise who he's dealing with when he speaks to uh, to David. David was a great soldier and a warrior. And so in our modern day, he would have literally said, come on, lock and load, lads, we're off. David was ready for a fight. It wasn't really a high point for David. He doesn't respond the way that the Lord would have him respond to an insult, perhaps... I think we've all been in that point, haven't we? Where you don't respond the best way or even to attack. God would have us bear insults with love and kindness, returning evil with our good, the high ground to walk on as commanded by Jesus from Matthew chapter 5 says, whoever slaps you on the right cheek, what do you do? You turn them the other one. So I always find that a bit of a, it's a lot to stomach that is, isn't it? But that's what he says. David didn't show Nabal the same kindness and long-suffering he'd showed to Saul in the previous chapter. David had spared Saul's life when Saul was not only insulted David, but actually attacked him and tried to kill him. David was able to be kind and long-suffering to Saul, but it seems that it's harder to do it towards someone he perceived as an equal or lower than himself. Have you ever come across that? I have it at work. If Because I'm in a navy blue dress, people will behave to me in a certain way. But then when my back's turned or the other navy blues are out the way, then people will respond totally different to one another because they're peers. Does that make sense? I'm sure you've all experienced that. And so, therefore, how we respond to an equal or somebody that's actually that you think is in a lower position is actually your strength of character rather than how you respond to a superior. David wasn't coming to Nabal to make a statement. He was coming to wipe him out. That's why he armed himself and his men, and that's why he left behind some men to watch the stuff and serve as reinforcements. Nabal lived up to his name. He was a fool. His life was in imminent danger. His wife knew it. His servants knew it. But he didn't know it. He eats. 
he gets drunk, as if all were fine and he doesn't have a care in the world. In this regard, Nabal is a picture of an individual who goes on rejecting God without regard to God's coming judgment. David certainly would have killed Nabal. And it was certain that God will judge the sinner who continues to reject him. All Nabal had to do was to invite David to that incredible feast and Nabal's life would have been spared. Nabal's own greed and foolishness is his undoing. If you don't want to be a Nabal any longer and you want to invite Jesus to be your Lord and Saviour, then you can do that this morning. You don't have to wait. The Father wants you to have the opportunity for a fresh start today. Don't reject him. Don't put it off. Seize the day and seize the moment. At this point, we're just going to pray. Is that okay? I'm going to say a prayer. And if this is for you, because you don't want to be in a bowl any longer, and you want to make sure that you are sure of your place in God's kingdom, then you repeat this quietly to yourself in your own heart. Dear Lord Jesus, I know that I am a sinner. I ask you for your forgiveness. I believe you died for my sins and rose from the dead. I turn from my sins and invite you to come into my heart and life. I want to trust you and follow you as my Lord and Saviour. In your name, amen. If that's you, then I want you to come and see me at the end, okay? And we'll pray together. It's possible that this wasn't the first time that Abigail had gotten Nabal out of a self-imposed mess. The words from the ser- that servant used when reporting the incident to Abigail indicate that it wasn't a secret that Nabal was a mean-spirited fool. Abigail understood her place as a wife and a mistress of the household to protect her husband and his property. Nabal was thoughtless, self-absorbed and arrogant. And Abigail was reasonable, wise and prudent in both her words and actions. Abigail didn't waste time fretting over what to do or bad-mouthing her husband. She simply went to work to rectify the situation. This tells us several things about Abigail. She was smart. She didn't have to mull over possible scenarios or options. She instantly understood the gravity of the situation and the cultural expectations of potential impact. Time was of the essence. She immediately went to work putting a plan together to save her family and she was resourceful. Abigail set to work pulling together an impressive gift for David and his men. Because of the celebration of the sheep shearing, one that was proportioned to the Feast of Kings, Abigail was able to pull together a great deal of food in a short amount of time without even raising her husband's suspicion. She loaded the donkeys, 
with the best that her husband had to offer in hopes of pacifying David's anger. As a mistress of the household, Abigail gave li- likely was likely to have given oversight to all the matters pertaining of the household. It appears that she was intimately involved in the day-to-day operations of her servants. She knew exactly what was available to her and where to obtain it. The servants obviously trusted her to rectify a horrible situation. And she also had a network of support in her home. She had clearly built a level of trust with the household servants that when she gave orders, they obeyed without even hesitation. That speaks of Abigail's proven character, sacrifice and faithfulness. Somehow, Abigail was able to make the best of a bad situation, not just for herself, but for those under her authority. So what does all this mean for us? Start afresh. Stop being foolish. But that means a response. Some may have made a response already this morning and are now new Christians. But what about Christians who've been on the journey for a while? What do you need to stop and start afresh? Secondly, don't hesitate. In a crisis, get your hands dirty. Abigail couldn't, she couldn't afford to wait on that. It was a crisis situation. Make amends quickly. That's the third thing we need to do. Make amends quickly and don't leave relationships to fester. Often we take far too long when it comes to an apology in life. I'm talking to husbands, wives, those in long-term relationships, to our personal saviour. I'm talking to those in situations where relationship of some sort is uncomfortable or awkward. In this generation, it's always about, I'm right, I'm standing my ground, I'm having my say, I'm right. We're it all over the place. Abigail was faultless and innocent, but she took responsibility and blame because she didn't want a catastrophe for the family. What do you desire most? To be right or to save your family? Save your community? What do you need to take responsibility for? What do you need to say sorry for? What do you need to make amends for? We need to do it quickly. Abigail used what resources she had and saved many lives. She had no title. She worked with the staff and the servants. She ran the household and she seemingly to most appeared to have, ha- to have no value, no title. But look what she did. God is calling each one of you. There are so many job he- roles here today. 
I wonder if, if I mention your job role, will you stand to your feet? If you are in education or teaching in some form, would you stand to your feet? If you are in care, nursing care, medical care, medical stuff, would you stand to feet? If you are in social work, would you stand to your feet? If you are in administration or finance, would you stand to your feet? If you are in logistics or sorting out practical stuff, then stand to your feet. If you are retired, stand to your feet. If you are in school or college or uni, stand to your feet. If you are in sales or if you are in building, stand to your feet. If you are in food industry, stand to your feet. If you are in farming or fitness, stand to your feet. If you are electrical engineers, stand to your feet. <laughs> Is there any, if you are mums at home, working full time at home with your kids, stand to your feet. If you are in nurseries or day nurseries, stand to your feet. Can you see how many jobs and places we occupy? Forgive me. If you are in sign language, stand to your feet. This is a test of how many people are know and what jobs they do. If you're in probation services or transport services, would you stand to your feet? If you're a pastor, stand to your feet. <laughs> Have I missed anybody else out? If you're in retail, stand to your feet. Have I missed anybody, anything else? If you are self-employed, stand to your feet. Can you see how many jobs and places we occupy? Please sit down. I can't do any more. <laughs> we need to be the gap in our workplaces and in the roles that we hold just like Abigail. We need to be peacemakers. We need to mend relationships and recognise spiritual significance of certain events. And we need to use the resources at our fingertips. Abigail gave out food and it was a feast to fit a king. The men wanted feeding. So many of us sit back and we think, I've got nothing to offer or I don't want to do that or I'm worth more than that. What have you got at your fingertips? What skills have you got? What can you give to the king? A spiritual significance is that as a church, we have over 40 children on a Sunday. And we know that the Bible says, train a child in the way that it is to go. Is it high flying? 
Is it high profile? On the surface of it, no, it's not. Is it spiritually significant? Yes, it is. I was saved and had a revelation of Christ when I was seven years old and I am standing here today, 38 years later, as a result of many people toiling away, teaching me God's word, taking me to youth events, messing up their personal agendas. In my generation of youth, the majority of our youth, and it was big, 60 souls, are still in church today and the majority of us are all in leadership Have you read about the men or women or families who trained us in the Christian press? No. But they did what they did serve the next generation, and I thank God for them, the same as Morris's folks that trained him. We've got six children moving from children's church to senior school this September. Who wants to care for teenagers? And walk with them as they walk through this world. It's difficult. They have strops. Will it be worth my time? I'm not sure. Will they let you down? Yes, they will. Is it spiritually significant? Yes, it is. This is the second large harvest of children raised in this house. Rose and Rosemary and Judith prayed for the first harvest that we had in church because we seem to not have any children coming up through our, you know, people that have kind of had their own children. We had loads of children coming in. And then in one year, after 18 months of prayer, we had 17 children, 17 babies in one year after, after they prayed. And Abigail, sorry... Abigail, who's uh, 14, and my Grace, who's 13, they were the top, the start and the end of that year. That was the first harvest. And you know what? I thank God for all of the others of you that are here in this place, that are young people that have come and, and are in this church as a result. But all the statistics and parents will tell you that once they get to about 15, they don't want to stay in church. It's not relevant. It's not attractive. If you've got a young person by you, thank God for them. Encourage them. Ask them what they need prayer for. And if they don't respond well, don't be put off. If they grunt at you, I'm not saying you're going to do that, Abby. If they grunt at you, it doesn't matter. They're probably embarrassed and think, Ooh. But don't be put off. We need to encourage them. We've got six kids that are moving up to senior school and so moving up to the youth group. God wants to breathe afresh. And that means parents, we need to bring them and we need to encourage them to be involved and to dig in and to get involved. God's given to us, but can we be trusted with what he's given us? The principle is he gives more to those he can trust, the parable of the talents. Can we be trusted or will we just bury what we have and not develop it? Now is not me time. We are slaves to the gospel. I'm really sorry because this is not palatable, but I'm tired of waiting for people to feel like everything is stable in their life until they'll get involved in volunteering and steering people in the kingdom. 
we are talking about spiritual significance of everything that we do, whether we preach, clean, teach, wash up, lead worship, empty the bins, lead a missional community, hold a job down, management roles, social networking. We are contending for the community of Junction 10 and for Warsaw, for each one, young and old, to come to Jesus. Folks, we are stripped back and no longer can we look around and congratulate those who are serving Jesus and make suggestions because God is actually putting each one of us in an uncomfortable position where he's asking you, how much do you really want my kingdom to come? How much do you really want young and older folk to have a relationship with God in their lives? The Christian life is a battle and we just look at the news to wake, we need to wake up and realise what is going on. Life is not comfy cosy, we are in our battle and so are our kids daily but we seem to dress ourselves in flimsy wear instead of full battle armour. Don't let the enemy fool you. Are you prepared? Are you desperate enough to sacrifice your own timetables and routines? What are your personal core values in your life for you and your family? And what are you living for? And who are you living for? How much do you really want that new building? Enough to disciple people, encourage people, welcome people, bring people, share the gospel with people, gossip God's goodness, intercede to go on God's behalf, to do what he's asked you to do, the practical stuff, to get your own rhythms right. You know, for Adam and I, um, as parents, our main goal is for our children to become adults that acknowledge Christ as their Lord and to witness his love and see his power in their lives, to be responsible adults contributing to the local community. Therefore, our aim is to teach them the rhythms of faith and to have a reference catalogue of their own experience of God answering prayer on a regular basis. My kids are far from perfect and please don't look up them as such because you'll be disappointed with them and disappointed with me. But do I want them to be well educated and have good jobs? Yeah, but more than that, I want them to be able to put God first and to seek him in their life. And to have them, to teach them how to pray, how to handle situations, clashes with teachers, responding to friends, responding to the world's values. That's what I want to teach my kids. And that's what I want to teach our kids and our young people. Adam and I were youth leaders for years. And for my own children, for them to continue to have a great youth, then I am dependent upon you in this family to bring your kids. Why? Because that way they have more friends, they have more fun, they have the opportunity to share life on life with people from different cultures and different backgrounds. I'm dependent on you. Young people, you might not have been coming to youth, but we need you at youth. 
even though it means there might be some little kids because you've learnt lessons that I haven't. And you can help younger ones. You live in a different world to what I live in. And you've worked out solutions of how to thrive. And God loves the fact that you are in this house and he loves each and every one of you. And when you come, suddenly things change and it suddenly gets to a bigger youth. And suddenly there's a synergy that God does when he brings people together. And suddenly this time next year, when it's the next batch that are going to be going up, they can't wait to get to youth because there's something thriving going on. We are dependent on one another. It's countercultural, not isolated families surviving, but seeing the spiritual significance and recognition of the power of togetherness. There are so many ways that we can change the atmosphere and share the love of Jesus. Are you captivated with Christ? I'm going to pray, if that's okay. Should we stand to our feet? Lord, I pray. I pray a release over people that are in this congregation or even listening on the podcast that they may understand the spiritual significance to situations in their life that impact others' lives. I pray that as folk are in staff meetings, planning meetings, in the middle of conversations, that Holy Spirit, you will suddenly reveal your purposes and plans. I pray that each one would see trails just like that picture that children have in a book of treasure trails, that it looks all like a knotted piece of string, but they will suddenly see how you get them to the treasure. Lord, I pray that you would unveil this. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would would cause people to see this, how they can connect with you. May we have a deeper relationship with you. May we have a passion to see people find you as their Lord and Saviour. Help us not to be selfish and to see our time and our belongings as ours like Nabal did, but that all that we have is given to us from you and therefore to give generously all that we are. Raise us up as individuals and a community that are prepared to stand in the gap and take responsibility in your kingdom, almighty God. For those on the bench due to poor health and difficulties, Lord, I pray that you would place a gift of intercession and I pray that you would release gifts of prophecy, wisdom and visions I pray that you would use each one of us, no matter where we are in the team, whether we're on the bench or whether we're playing centre forward or whether we're in the goal. Lord, I pray that you would release the gifts of your spirit to your body for the extension of your kingdom. 
Help us to see the spiritual significance in things and not to let the enemy just distract us and think it's of nothing. And Lord, I pray that your kingdom would come. We pray for those kids in there. We pray that they would know you as their Lord and Saviour. We pray for our young people standing here and those that aren't necessarily here and they're coming later. I pray that you would put something so strong within them. I pray that they would be oaks of righteousness in the name of Jesus. Amen. We're going to remain standing. We're going to take up our tithes and our offerings as we give to our God all that we are. Let's sing.